Hello everyone and welcome to the September 21st edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Folson, attorney with Floyd, Skarn & Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The WCAB, in an en banc decision, extended the IMR appeal time limit to 35 days. Here's what happened in the case of Matute versus the Los Angeles Unified School District. Joanne Matute claimed a CT injury to her psyche, fibromyalgia, carpal tunnel syndrome, allergies, and rheumatoid arthritis while employed as a teacher for the Los Angeles Unified School District. She was awarded 37% permanent disability and future medical treatment for rheumatoid arthritis, fibromyalgia, and psychiatric injuries. On July 7, 2014, her PTP issued a prescription for 24-hour home health care. The employer timely served applicant with a UR determination that the requested services were not medically necessary. Applicant filed a timely request for an IMR. On November 6, 2014, Maximus Federal Services issued a final determination letter upholding the UR denial. 34 days later, applicant filed an appeal of the IMR determination. The work comp judge found that a five-day extension for service by mail did not apply to applicant's IMR appeal and dismissed the appeal as untimely. But the WCAB reversed and held that the 30-day period to file a timely appeal from an IMR determination is extended by five days pursuant to the provisions of Labor Code Section 5316 and the Code of Civil Procedure Section 1013A. WCAB Rule 10957.1C specifically mentions service by mail as the triggering event for responding to an IMR determination. This rule reflects the intended meaning of mailing in light of the relevant case law. The 30-day period to file an appeal of an IMR determination pursuant to this section 46106H is extended by five days. The WCAB ordered a QME panel in a psychiatric add-on case. Here's what happened in the case of Hernandez versus Fremont Bank. SB 863 placed limits on the ability to claim permanent disability for psychiatric injury, sleep disorder, or sexual disorder if it is the result of a physical injury. Before the new law, these claims were referred to as the AMA Guides Add-on Cases. This recent case may answer a question about the use of a PQME with a specialty in those areas in an add-on case. Sherry Hernandez was a bank teller for Fremont Bank and claimed to have sustained a specific injury to her knee and cumulative trauma injury to her left leg and foot. Both applications were amended to include a claim of injury to the psyche, stomach, and internal organs. The parties later decided to use an orthopedic AME. 
but applicant then petitioned for assignment of an additional panel in psychiatry, which was ordered by a work comp judge. It is from this order that the defendant petitioned for removal. The defendant argued that under SB 863, there shall be no increases in impairment ratings for sleep dysfunction, sexual dysfunction, or psychiatric disorder arising out of a compensable physical injury. Therefore, the defendant said a medical legal evaluation in the specialty of psychiatry was inappropriate. But the WCAB denied removal. After SB 863, an injured employee may still obtain treatment for a sleep dysfunction, sexual dysfunction, or a psychiatric disorder. The appropriate procedure to resolve a dispute over injury is therefore to utilize a PQME or agree to an AME. The fact that the compensation for a permanent psychiatric impairment is not available to this injured worker does not deprive her of her potential right to medical care or temporary disability indemnity on a psychiatric basis. And now our crime report. Two grand jury indictments charge an orthopedic surgeon, his personal attorney, and a cadre of assistants with operating one of the largest insurance fraud scams in state history. Dr. Munir Ueda, his personal lawyer, and his former office manager were among the 15 named in two indictments totaling 132 felony counts. Ueda was arrested in Germany and is awaiting extradition back to the United States. The indictment outlined fraudulent billing of more than $150 million to insurance companies, including workers' compensation claims, and paying attorneys and marketers up to $10,000 a month each for illegal patient referrals known as capping. But the most serious charges involved nearly two dozen patients who had surgeries performed by a physician's assistant who never attended medical school. The physician's assistant operated on patients while they were under general anesthesia and without Ueda being present in the operating room. All 21 patients sustained lasting scars and many required additional surgeries. A total of 102 people testified during two separate grand jury proceedings, one in February and the second this August. The 57-count indictment charges Ueda and 10 other defendants with one count each of conspiracy, 32 counts each of insurance fraud, 18 counts each of aggravated mayhem, and three counts each of capping or unlawful client referrals. Ueda, the physician's assistant, and three others are charged with three additional counts of aggravated mayhem involving patients. The indictment alleges MRI and insurance authorization reports were routinely altered to justify surgeries, and some surgeries were performed with no medical justification. In the second 75-count indictment, this includes Ueda's personal lawyer and three others charged as co-conspirators. 
Former state senator Leland Yee, in a plea agreement this summer, admitted that he traded his political influence for bribes. Yee, among other things, admitted he agreed to influence legislation for an NFL team owner trying to exempt pro-athletes from the state's workers' compensation laws. Yee is scheduled to be sentenced on October 21st. Now, six more defendants have entered guilty pleas in the case. George Nee, Leslie Yun, Kevin Sui, Alan Chu, Yat Wa Pao, and Andy Lee all pleaded guilty to a broad range of charges alleged against them in a superseding indictment filed last January. The indictment charged the defendants with illegal conduct stemming from an alleged racketeering operation. The guilty pleas bring to 10 the number of people who have pleaded guilty to one or more of the charges in the indictment. The superseding indictment charged 28 people in all. Unlike earlier pleas, these guilty pleas do not include an admission of guilt with respect to the RICO charge. Eight of the defendants, including the six defendants who pleaded guilty, are scheduled for trial in November. And in regulatory news, the California legislature passed AB 1124, which would establish an evidence-based closed drug formulary for workers' compensation by July 1, 2017, if signed by the governor. This bill gives the DWC Administrative Director clear authority to establish a formulary. An effective formulary will control rising prescription drug costs in California's workers' comp system, limit the overprescribing of highly addictive opioids, and ensure injured workers get the necessary treatment needed to get back to work. Drug formularies have proven to be very effective at managing the cost of prescription drugs. Health plans have been using formularies in California for decades and they are commonly accepted as a useful cost control mechanism. They control costs by limiting the utilization of high-priced drugs and reducing the price of drugs. The California Applicants Attorneys Association argued against the law, claiming that establishing a formulary is just another in a long line of takeaways from injured workers. Business groups supported this bill, and the California Labor Federation supports the concept of a formulary. Notwithstanding this legislation, the DWC has already commenced public hearings on a drug formulary, believing that it has authority to adopt one without further legislation. And there was cautious optimism voiced at the DWC drug formulary public hearing. California insurance experts are optimistic that a formulary will help injured workers and reduce comp costs in the state. But the legislation could face hurdles from claimants who need to be weaned from banned drugs or want to continue using them off-label. An American Insurance Association spokesman said the formulary takes a significant step forward in improving the state workers' compensation system. The president of the Association of California Insurance Companies said the proposal could help curb opioid addiction and ensure injured workers receive appropriate medications. 
But while California's formulary has received positive reactions, experts say there also could be some pushback. California insurance regulators have discussed limiting the off-label use of medications for conditions that are not FDA-approved for such drugs. For example, injured workers could have difficulty getting prescriptions for some powerful opioids that are only approved for treating end-stage cancer pain. But the formulary could include a process for claimants who want to continue taking medications for off-label uses. And patients already on medications need a robust and carefully managed transition process. A provision in the bill requires a yet-to-be-determined transition period. A major concern voiced by several participants during the public meeting was the need to ensure that the formulary is consistent with the state's medical treatment utilization schedule. The DWC has posted an order adjusting the official medical fee schedule to conform to changes in the Medicare payment system. This modification is required by Labor Code Section 5307.1. The Physician and Non-Physician Practitioner Fee Schedule Update Order adopts the National Correct Coding Initiative Medically Unlikely Edits for October 1, 2015 Quarterly Update. And the National Correct Coding Initiative Physician Practitioner Services CCI edits October 125 quarterly update, as well as the CMS Medicare National Physician Fee Schedule Relative Value RVU 15D October 1, 2015 quarterly update. The order is effective for services rendered on or after October 1, 2015 and can be found on the DWC website. Governor Brown signed SB 623, a new workers' compensation law that will become effective this January. After the voters approved Proposition 187 back in 1994, which was an initiative that restricted the rights of undocumented immigrants in a number of ways, regulations were adopted to implement the proposition. Despite the court's subsequent invalidation of that initiative, the regulations have remained on the books. California regulations still prohibit an undocumented worker from receiving benefits from both the Unemployment Benefits Trust Fund and the subsequent Injuries Benefits Trust Fund as the regulations have not been updated since 1998. As such, these regulations have been out of compliance with state law since the 2003 court case. This bill was intended to expressly overrule those regulations despite the fact that there has not been the loss of any benefits for undocumented injured workers. The California Applicants Attorneys Association and the California Chamber of Commerce strongly supported this law. There was no opposition to the bill shown in the legislative record. The practical effect of this law is to state unequivocally that the plain reading of the regulations is not the law. And in medical news, a potentially important step toward creating safer opioid analgesics has been the development of opioids that are formulated to deter abuse. 
Abuse is the intentional non-therapeutic use of a drug, product, or substance, even once, to achieve a desirable psychological or physiological effect. Abuse deterrent properties meaningfully deter abuse, even if they do not fully prevent abuse. The FDA considers the development of drugs with abuse deterrent properties a high public health priority. An example of abuse deterrent properties would be physical barriers that can prevent chewing, crushing, cutting, grating, or grinding of the dosage form. Chemical barriers such as gelling agents can resist extraction of the opioid using common solvents like water, alcohol, or other organic solvents. Physical and chemical barriers can limit drug release following mechanical manipulation or change the physical form of a drug, rendering it less amenable to abuse. An opioid antagonist can be added to interfere with, reduce, or defeat the euphoria associated with abuse. Substances can be added to the product to produce an unpleasant effect if the dosage form is manipulated or is used at a higher dosage than directed. Certain drug release designs or the method of drug delivery can offer resistance to abuse. Pernix Therapeutics, Eaglet Corporation, ChemFarm Incorporated, Intella Pharmaceutics, International Inc., Pain Therapeutics Inc., and Acura Pharmaceuticals, Inc. are moving the drug makers developing abuse deterrent painkillers. The FDA has already approved Hysingla made by Purdue Pharma, which also makes OxyContin. Hysingla is a pure hydrocodone drug unlike Vicodin, which contains a combination of short-acting hydrocodone and acetaminophen. Earlier this year, the FDA approved Targanique ER, a painkiller that combines oxycontin and naloxone. The naloxone blocks the euphoric effects of oxycodone, making it less appealing to abuse. Targanique ER can be crushed and then snorted or injected, but if the pills are crushed, the naloxone becomes active. The FDA recently approved new labeling for the opioid painkiller Embedda that states the drug has abuse deterrent features. The science of abuse deterrent medication is rapidly evolving and the FDA is eager to engage with manufacturers to help make these medications available to patients who need them. And with that story, that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Skern, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.